travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Welcome to Talk Travel Asia, episode number 26. Today we are going to be talking about responsible tourism with Bodhi Garrett of Andaman Discoveries. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing good, man. I'm down here in Kuala Lumpur as usual, and this is uh, an episode that we've talked about doing for a long time, but I think we've maybe not known how to approach it, but luckily you know Bodhi. And we read a story the other week online, I believe in The Guardian, about the douchery or something along those lines of kind of... Tier douchism or something. Yeah, so it got us thinking, let's do this one. Yeah, because you know, there was a time when ecotourism was the big travel buzzword. And while nobody really knew exactly what ecotourism meant, it was supposed to be something that was green or perhaps sustainable. Um, probably pro-environment, but I, I got the feeling that eventually ecotourism became this kind of douchey, like pseudo, you know, just anything that happened to be outdoors kind of label. Yeah, it's too broad, Ben. It's, it's I mean, how do you know what ecotourism is? Does it mean you, you hire two locals? I mean, I've often laughed when I've been in hotels and they say, you know, we care about the environment, hang your towels here to use them again, but yet they have, you know, an infinity pool on every room. So yeah, what does it mean, right? It's a, it's a real tricky one. It's a slippery slope. I know that in my years in travel, uh, we developed a number of community programs, which I think worked really well, but we discovered some interesting things. Often it's, you know, more difficult to, to put money in the right hands in the right way than you might think. And then we hosted some groups that wanted to do, you know, volunteerism, and I, I never felt right about it. It's, it's tricky. It's certainly not easy to do. And I think that the, the fellow you have teed up for us today seems to be the real deal on that. Yeah, I, I think so. He's been really useful for me uh, when I was doing my travel writing stuff. I believe I met him 10 years ago, right around the time of the tsunami. I was working for Fodor's at the time, but also yeah. working with National Geographic. Um, he's actually helped me shape my understanding of what quote-unquote responsible tourism is um, using his community-based tourism and, and community-based ecotourism, uh, programs that actually are beneficial to people and their communities or the environment, um, giving to them rather than just being about money. Yeah, fantastic. But before we get too, too much further, um, we should mention our sponsors. And those are friends of yours again, man. You seem to know everyone. It is the good people at CM Reup Dirt Bikes. Tell us about them, Trevor. Yeah, CM Reup Dirt Bikes is a great off-road motorcycle outfit uh, based in Siem Reup, Cambodia. And they, right. they can take you on day trips or multi-day excursions. Um, he's got really good bikes. He's Richard, he's really into safety and his equipment is really good. He's very patient for beginners. Um, but at the same time, he's just gung-ho about doing great off-road bike trips. And uh, the most extreme advanced riders, I'm sure, can, can test their limits and have a great time. And, and he'll be smiling right there alongside you. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, try the services when we finally get to Priya Khan in the center of Cambodia. So thanks very much to them. You know, just before you, you take us into our uh, interview here, Trevor, you know, the, the one thing I think that's always important for people to remember when they do an organized volunteer experience is to remember that 
companies organizing this stuff do make a profit. And I know that when I used to work in tourism, we did a few and profit wasn't the main motive, but we, we made a little bit of money along the way. And people, when they're planning, got to remember that if they're enlisting people's help. But, um, you know, just taking us into the interview introduction here, there was a great quote I found on this website, and that is responsible travel is, is about minimizing the negative impact of your travel and directly giving back to the communities you visit. It's about understanding the story behind the price you're paying and knowing the local people who are working hard to make your holiday an enjoyable one. And I thought that uh, sums it up pretty good. Yeah, you know, the reality is just that tourism is a massive industry and it does leave an enormous footprint on both the environment and the local cultures where tourists go to visit. Um, you know, while there certainly are exploitive organizations who naively or not brand themselves responsible or outright misrepresent themselves, um, I think there's definitely lots of organizations that also genuinely offer responsible travel opportunities. And I think the trick is for tourists just being able to find the right one. Yeah, well, tell us about our guest, uh, Bodhi. Yeah, today's guest is Bodie Garrett. He founded the North Andaman Tsunami Relief Program after the tsunami struck the region back in December 2004. Uh, since then, his grassroots program has helped 12 different villages in the region, probably more now, with over 100 different projects. Um, he's kind of, in my opinion, a guru of community-based tourism down in the south of Thailand and has been indispensable as a resource for my travel writing research when I'm looking for responsible tourism providers in the region. Welcome to the show, Bodhi. Thanks, Scott. It's nice to be here. Hey, uh, this is Scott Bodhi. Uh, where exactly are you right now? Right now I'm talking to you from the coastal town of Kuraburi, which is in Thailand's Panga province. And... It's a beautiful province with a lot of undeveloped land, beautiful coastal reefs, islands, and a lot of jungle, and some really lovely villages that we've been helping to recover from the tsunami and then head in the direction of sustainable development over the last decade. Wow, okay, I wish I was there. Yeah, it's definitely a beautiful area. I, uh... Bodhi hosted me down there, uh, I think it was just last year, and uh, that was my first time to Ranong, and it's, uh, I, I actually went back again since then. It's a really beautiful area. Uh, what, what brought you to Thailand, Bodhi, and, and why did you get involved in uh, community development or tourism down in that area? Well, I got involved in community development and tourism because I was born and raised in Kathmandu, Nepal. And I actually went back there after I got out of college, but the Civil War made it pretty hard to get a job in the areas of sustainable development or community tourism. So I actually came to Thailand as a volunteer for a sea turtle conservation program and was the first foreigner to end up living in a very small village along the Andaman coast. So uh, there actually ended up being no sea turtles whatsoever, but... Hmm. Where was that sea turtle program located? the village that was in Bantalinok. Wow, that's, that's, that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, it was a really rural setting. I mean, I showed up and they really didn't have much experience with me and I had thought here I was okay. going to come and teach the locals conservation. And when I got there, I realized that actually I had a lot more to learn from them than they had to learn from me, particularly about the way of life and what was worth protecting around here. So it was a really great introduction to the sort of undiscovered places in Thailand from, you know, from the touristic point of view. But for me, it really grew as, as, as my home and my heart. And so I shortly after the volunteer stint got a job at an ecotourism resort 
and on uninhabited island off the coast and i was there for about eight months uh, and that's when the tsunami hit wow you know um you, you sort of touched on something trevor and i talked a bit about earlier uh, before we had you on and i just want to as you're the real expert in this how do you define, say, community-based tourism, and how do you think it's different from today's buzzwords of being like sustainable or responsible tourism? What, what do you th- are these the same things, and, and what do you think it all kind of means? I think the buzzwords are useful in two respects. First, to help people start to understand what kind of a, a tourism they want to support, uh, and then secondly, pretty quickly as as marketing terms. Um, so for me, when you look at community-based tourism, it can take a lot of different forms, but at its essence, it remains a tool for the community's development and progression towards what they feel is a better future. So even if you open up a beachside resort, you hire everyone from the village, and it looks like you're really supporting the community, well, not so sure about that. Are you paying locals a fair wage? Are you training them so that they might be able to one day run their own resorts? Are you respecting the local customs and culture and sharing the local way of life? Or are you bringing in a bunch of hard partying louts that aren't going to integrate with the the locals? So, you know, I think community-based tourism is at, at its heart is a cooperative endeavor to make sure that the villagers have not only a direct benefit from tourism, but a long-term say in how it affects their community. Wow. It's almost like you've said that before. <laughs> you know, actually, in that form, I haven't. That's kind of the fun thing about community-based tourism is if you don't give it a specific definition, you can allow it to meet the needs. Some people use community-based tourism specifically as a tool for economic improvement of a village. Some people use community-based tourism as a product that they sell in a catalog. But as long as the core intention is is the benefit of the community, I don't think it really matters where it comes from. So in that sense, it's a bit hard to screen for what the real thing is without a lot of research. That's what I was thinking, because I was like, what if the community wants to turn it into some big beachside party destination with concrete bungalows uh, simply because they want to cash in? You know, like technically then that could be community-based tourism because that's what that community wants. It, It could be, although often, you know, tourism starts in areas that are relatively undeveloped. So the locals don't necessarily have the access to cash to build those big buildings. So by the time you take Kopangan from a couple people dancing on a beach at a locally owned bar to the full moon party situation that we see there now, Uh, most of the locals are going to have been removed from the chain of economic benefit or relegated to minor roles. Mm. And and that's important, I think, because we talked a little bit about that in the introduction too. kind of maybe not the the deleterious side effects of tourism development, but even some of the dangers of fake or faux responsible tourism, such as the orphanage tourism industry that they have there in Cambodia. How can tourists learn to differentiate between legitimate community-based tourism efforts and exploitive tourism offerings that simply brand themselves as, oh, we're an ecotourism venue or we help the communities? Well, I think one of the things is to recognize the place you're in and what level of the tourism development cycle it's on, which means to say, 
you know, if you're staying in Singapore or Bangkok or Phuket and you're looking to do a homestay, the chances of it being not as authentic or more commercially driven are very high. So to be a responsible tourist in an area that's already developed means looking for certain standards or qualities from their tourism providers. Whereas to go into the realm of community-based tourism usually requires a departure from the more well-traveled places. So I think that's one way you can tell whether it's a genuinely community-based tourism effort is where it's originating. And then to do a little bit more background check on who are the people in the position of leadership? What are the interests of the company that's doing this? And what's their track record? What's their background? Did they just print it in their brochure or have they been doing it for a decade? Hmm. Um, you know, on, on that one, I've, I've been involved in a, a few different projects and there's been a lot of uh, media over the last few months about sort of, there was one actually called about being a douche and going places to get your, your photo kissing a baby or holding a baby. And, and then some of these fundraising trips, I'm saying, you know, you should actually just give that money to locals that can do it right. Are there, there are certain things that you just shy away from and think like, ooh, this this isn't a good field to be in, or do you embrace it all? Are there certain aspects of responsible tourism that people should just kind of avoid by rule of thumb? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't categorically stay away from any types of projects with the exception of possibly large construction projects because they often involve corruption. But what I would say that's important is the people, how to say, there's a sucker born every minute and two to take him up on it. So if you're someone who's going out into the world to gratify your own feelings of being a good human being by not doing very much volunteer work at a place that looks like horrendously impoverished people will benefit from your saintly help, then yeah, you're probably going to find the people that are willing to sell that to you. But I would encourage people to take a deeper look at the notion of service and understand that when they travel and they come to serve, they also benefit a lot from that and to find organizations that are capable of handling inexperienced volunteers and plugging them into an appropriate mm. role, which honestly isn't saving the life of some poor orphan. You know, I mean, you can't, you can't do that right. in two weeks. It takes a trained staff mm. with huge support decades to accomplish a goal like that. So if those people that, that want to go help with, with issues like orphans and child poverty could instead look a bit deeper into themselves and, and see why they want to help and how they can help most effectively, I think they would reach more solid conclusions. Now, as to the nature of short-term volunteerism being shallow, well, I mean, I think that's one way we can understand our social media and our obsession with self-portrayal is that, you know, you, you reap what you sow. If, if you really do only want the selfie, then you're probably going to be supporting exploitive forms of tourism and, and the criticism is well-deserved. Yeah, you know, I, uh, for my own personal experience, because uh, for my travel writing, especially with National Geographic, I try to find 
responsible tourism providers that I can promote. And usually when I go to these places, um, I meet people who are volunteers with those organizations who started out as customers of those organizations. So I, I mean, in my opinion, if you were going to travel and you were looking for this type of experience, I say you, you get out there in the field and you see for it, you, you check them out firsthand so you can see what it's really like before saying, you know what, I think this place is legitimate and I think that it could use my help. So on that note, I, I did a trip with you. I went to Bantalinok, where you started your career here in Thailand. I went on an Andaman Discoveries tour there. And I believe that that girl who I went with, she was a, a volunteer with you originally, yeah? Yeah, she definitely was. And, you know, we we find a meaningful way to do it. And that's why, to me, it's a little sad to see the whole of volunteerism coming under criticism. Because I think, you know, there are a couple ways that you can do it well. Way number one, if you have a New York office, a Bangkok office, and an office in the place where you're allegedly helping people, it might raise some suspicions about where the money is going. <laughs> but if you can find a locally-based organization the the important thing is to make sure that you are contributing to their ongoing capacity to help. And so that's what we do. We make sure that we screen our volunteers first to make sure that they're coming for the right reasons and everything's kosher with their background. And then we make sure that their contribution not only includes the cost of their time there, but a contribution to teacher salary or the kids' lunch program or a number of other things in the long run. And we also make sure that their responsibilities are limited to ones that are reasonable for them to accomplish in the two-week minimum stay that they have. So, you know, I mean, it, it can be done, but it's certainly not something that is easily accomplished, and it's certainly something that people need to be very careful in selecting, which is why it was nice of you to take the time to find us, Trevor. Yeah, no, it's great. You've been really helpful. So... Based on what, you, what you've kind of said there, and, and Trevor mentioned that he went to Bantale Nok, in what ways does such a community like that benefit from community-based tourism and responsible tourism? Well, I think Bantale Nok is a really good example because they are a traditional fishing community, mm -hmm. and they very much like their way of life by the sea, okay. but there is a lot going on that is keeping them from having the same traditional fishing life that they used to. Mm. Mostly the increasing cost of life, of things that need to be bought, and the fact that there aren't really any fish left in the ocean. They've been overfished. So these are guys that really don't want to leave the village to go get work elsewhere. And also the value of their fruit has gone down. So the women uh, are having much harder time selling cashews and other traditional forms of income. So they're really looking for a way to stay in their village that doesn't involve, you know, having to send at least the husband or the wife away to Phuket or Renong or Bangkok to work in a factory. Um, and so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, actually, I realize we put the cart before the horse here, but can you tell us a little bit about this this program? Yeah. So basically, the program was started in the wake of the tsunami because people had identified that they really needed supplemental livelihoods. The tsunami disrupted the patterns of fishing. The fish catch was going down anyway. And so people, as they wanted to build back better, saw tourism both as an opportunity in terms of bringing people into their village and making some supplementary income, and as a threat because they looked southward to the beaches of Phuket and Kaulak and, and saw that the 
negative forms of development there in terms of villagers being cut out of the land access to the beach, in terms of bars and prostitution and a lot of other unsavory aspects of tourism, you know, they didn't really want those in their villages and then having their kids subjected to this. So they thought they could maybe, you know, kill two birds with one stone by trying to jumpstart community-based tourism. And so that's where we got involved because they requested our help to do that. Hmm. Very cool. And so they, they formed a community tourism group and we asked them, you know, what elements of your life do you want to share? And they, and they thought about what they would want to do. And part of that was visiting the islands off the coast exploring their mangrove forests, going beach fishing, going for barbecues at the beach, and also some of the handicraft that they traditionally make in the village and, and showing people how to cook Thai food. And so we started with that and the volunteers piloted the programs and then we put it together as some itineraries and, and started welcoming guests and it's been very successful ever since. And the thing that I think I'm proudest of is that the whole thing does come from the village. We help. We've, we're a bridge to the outside world, but essentially it, it originates from them, from that group. Very, very cool. Wow. And, and are, what are the main challenges for them in trying to, like, suppose some other village nearby sees the success that they're having and, and wants to get it started themselves. Is it easier for, for other groups or other villages to try and emulate those successes? I think it's a little bit challenging in our area because tourism hasn't really developed full scale yet. So one of the biggest challenges for the group is, is finding guests. And that's obviously something that Undaman Discoveries with its experience in marketing and technology and communication can help them with. Um, so I, I think other villages that have tried to adopt the system in, in the area actually have been sort of welcomed into the circle. Um, and as Bantalenok and two other communities started to be successful in their community-based tourism program, it actually led to the emergence of a network of 13 communities up and down the coast that are connecting tourism development with sustainable development. Hmm. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about some of those other programs? I, I've still always wanted to do the Mokan experience out there on the Surin Islands. That's pretty high up on my bucket list of things to do here. Um, and then uh, there's another more educational program you have called the Burmese Learning Center. Why don't you tell us about those? Yeah, certainly. Well, with the, the Mokan experience on Koh Sarin, it's working with a, a group of indigenous people out on this island who face a lot of challenges in terms of their access to human rights and basic welfare. So after working with them in a medical and educational capacity for about seven years, at their request, we, we started training the Mokan tourism team. And, you know, it's a really sad scene out there right now. And they basically live in a tropical paradise uh, in thatched huts on the beach. And every day uh, the tourists sort of troop through their village and take photos and point and then go home. And they're left without any meaningful income because the national park won't let them fish, despite the fact that they're indigenous sea nomads. So it's a really challenging situation out there. And again, one where community-based tourism, if done right, could be really helpful, but if done wrong, could turn into a very exploitive thing. So it took us a long time to initiate that program, but now I'm, I'm really proud to say that we're working with the Mokan tourism team. We're bringing people out to go snorkeling with them, to learn about what plants they use for medicine, to learn about their way of life on the water, how they would journey in the dry season from island to island. 
and to really help, I think, restore the sense of value that they inherently have for their own culture and, and show the rest of the world and particularly the authorities they have to work with that this is something that, that a lot of people value. So it's, uh, it's succeeding to a degree and there's a lot more work to do with respect to helping them. Yeah, that sounds almost like the exact purpose of the community-based tourism that you mentioned earlier, where, you know, helping benefit the community or a culture in this instance to, to help better their ends, which in their case, to a large degree, is preserving their culture. Yeah, and actually simply not being forced to move off of their ancestral lands. You know, it's basically a life or death struggle for them. And, uh, and so hopefully we can play a small part in, in supporting them to stay there. Hey, Bodhi, one thing I'm really curious about is how do you tread the very, I assume, fine line between being the smart, educated, wealthy foreigner who's come to town and tells people how to do things the right way and being, you know, a, a patient person who's perceived as truly part of the community? How do you, how do you kind of, yeah, make that all work? I think the key is uh, who sets the agenda and I feel that through my friendships, through my constant communication, through formal and informal processes, we make sure that we're following the agenda that's set by the locals. Now, if that includes corruption and environmental destruction, we might focus on a different group of locals to work with. But overall, you know, as long as people are interested in making a positive impact in their community, those are the people that we listen to. And once we've ascertained what those priorities are and checked in with the larger community that that's basically something there's support for, then we work with the local leaders to figure out a method to accomplish that. So, for example, start with environmental conservation. Okay, um, I would think it was great if everybody was recycling 100% of their materials in a government program and wasn't eating anything from the forest or cutting down any trees. Now, that really wouldn't work because people already actually recycle their stuff. They sell it directly because it's worth money. And they need the products from the forest to fix their house and as the veggies they're going to eat with their shrimp paste tonight. So instead, listening to the locals, what I hear is that the mangrove forests and the upland rainforests right above the village are both under threat so then we support them to replant the mangrove forests, which gives them wood to build their house and crabs to eat for dinner. And then we support them talking with the big landowners who are cutting down the forest above their village and help them with some strategies for freshwater storage and conservation to mitigate the effects of the trees already cut down. And so in that sense, you know, we're not telling them, hey, this is what you need to do. We're saying, hey, how can we help? And here are some options to consider. But then ultimately, you need tourism revenue to help make all of these things happen. Well, that's why we moved towards the, the model of a tourism business was that it was a lot more efficient than asking for donations for, for several reasons. One, what we're doing, I think, is worth sharing and people can learn from it. But two, is working with the villagers with respect to community-based tourism makes what we do with respect to community development more real because we're not just coming in and holding hands and singing the kumbaya song or singing seeing them once a month for a project we're seeing them every week 
you know, with guests that are helping generate income for them in a respectful way. And so then when we go to do projects with them, I think, you know, we get a lot more traction. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, you know, I mean, the reason that the tourism is, is important is that it keeps the villagers economically motivated. It keeps us relevant and community development isn't really a full-time job you know progress happens in communities in fits and starts in ways that reflect the natural cycle of life for the village so it gives us a way to be in solidarity with them as the larger picture of sustainability starts to come together wow that's uh, man that's fascinating stuff and uh, we'd love to talk an hour on this one but uh, we've got to kind of wrap it up and as we do we're recording this episode uh, just a couple days, uh, two days after the big earthquake in Nepal struck. And we know that you were born and raised there and that you're just heading up some relief work there. Uh, this is going to be live about a month after the fact, but we're wondering what you're doing there. And just a couple days after, I mean, what do you think people could potentially do to have a bit of an impact there, Bodhi? I think we can consider the relief and recovery stages of the operation and how people can support in both. Um, I'm just heartbroken to know that the city that I grew up in has been so devastated. And I'm getting word from people on the ground that the Middle Hills area outside of the Kathmandu Valley is equally or more impacted, but we haven't been able to get any news out of those areas. So... I know that the effort will continue for, for months and years to come, which is why I'm starting a project to help the transition period from relief to recovery and make sure that that happens in a way that is sustainable and also that we're able to find the people who have sort of fallen through the cracks with respect to the larger aid organizations. And so what we're going to do is launch a cooperative effort called We Help Nepal. .org. Also find us on, on Facebook at We Help Nepal and use that as a place to bring together support and identify specific, really effective long-term projects that are going to have very little overhead and make sure that 100% of the donations get onto the ground. Now, I know that a lot of people are going to say that, but one of the things that's important to remember in a place like Nepal is there's a lot of systemic and structural corruption. And so it's really important to support efforts that have the ability to get around that corruption instead of further entrench it. And this is something that I definitely learned during the tsunami. Yeah, I was just going to say that I, I, I would have to think that after your experience um, in the aftermath of the tsunami and the success that you've had in helping develop these programs to, to aid people that were injured uh, physically and economically by the tsunami that you can repeat some of that success uh, in your home country. Yeah, and it's been nice to have the experience since the tsunami here in Thailand of also you know being able to connect our community-based tourism programs to education, to conservation, to disaster risk and reduction, disaster risk reduction, to climate change impacts. And I think we're going to be able to use a lot of that knowledge and a lot of the technology that's now available to make a big impact in, in Nepal and hopefully start to change the way that aid is given from a, a top-down hierarchical model to more of a direct assistance and solidarity model. I think the last 60 years of international development has taught us that 
the, the old ways of welfare and, and donations and big agencies haven't engendered as many solutions as we had hoped. And, and so now there's a whole new and exciting field of young entrepreneurs that are trying to make a difference in a way that's self-sustaining. Well, that's super uh, admirable and, and interesting and exciting, Bodhi. And uh, we'll put a link to that site on the show notes with this episode. So thank you uh, so much for being a guest and uh, good luck with that next project. I'll be personally following it as well and uh, wishing you well down there. And hopefully I can meet you in person one day soon. It's my absolute pleasure, Scott. And thank you, Trevor. It's It's a pleasure to work with you gentlemen. Thank you for taking the time to get the good word out there. So much of the information we get based on responsible tourism is marketing hype. And it's nice to, to find some people that are putting out the, the real information and taking the time to, to, you know, find the right sources and, and do it right. So I appreciate it. Well, you certainly deserve all the credit I can give you. And uh, I thank you for joining us on uh, this episode today. Uh, I hope we can meet up again soon. Take care, fellas. Have a great one. Yeah. You know, Touching on Nepal, which wasn't part of the original intent of, of this episode, you know, reminds me a lot of groups that I would see there and just passing by when leading trips. And I know the people I worked with there didn't like orphanage tourism, let's let's call it. You'd see the happy, you know, 20-something-year-olds snuggling with cute little children and all that. And it, it just, you realize that it's such a complicated thing to bring people to the other side of the world make them feel like they're doing a good thing, but actually have them do a good thing without being disruptive. And man, it sure sounds like Bodhi's got his head squarely screwed on. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's tricky, I guess, because, you know, we're like, oh, it's lucky there's someone like Bodhi who might be able to, to help the people there. But at the same time, you don't want to have these problems arise, but that's the reality of the world, I guess. And I have not been in Nepal, but I have friends from the area and, and I know that it is a fairly impoverished country. And I also know that it's a big tourist destination. So we can only hope that there is good tourism programs there that can help benefit the communities. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of the stuff Bodhi said, the stuff that I've read in articles, and it seems to be, it's funny how these cycles go, because I remember about a decade ago, uh, my business partner then and I, we planned kind of a trip with volunteering elements and they were non-disruptive and whatnot. And, and then it became a big trend. Like all of a sudden there was all kinds of companies doing volunteer travel. And now I'd say in the last year and a half or so, there started to be a lot of articles and things come out of everyone doing this stuff saying, hey, idiots, like, you know, you don't just traipse off to the other side of the world in your Abercrombie and fit shirt and, and paint a wall for a couple of days and you haven't saved the planet. And I, I like that you're, you're seeing this blowback. And then hopefully now in a couple of years from now, there'll be a lot more people operating with, with better practices and great intent. Yeah, because I think that's also occurring. I think there's people in their 20s, 30s, and even 40s, you know, people who have made a lot of money in their careers and are hoping to give back to communities that are setting up some initiatives like this, you know. So I think uh, that there there are opportunities for people to get involved in tourism that, that does benefit uh, local communities. It's just a, a trick to try to figure out which ones are going to do the job best. And, and like I said, I think it's best when you go there and you just experience, you look around as a tourist, then you find these places and maybe you should promote them to your friends or next time you go back you, you join them as a volunteer but you know yeah Bodhi touched on a, a few things that a lot of these articles have had I mean at the end of the day is is be real honest with yourself right like well, there's no shame in wanting to go somewhere and have great pictures and 
and whatnot, but but be realistic. Are you doing this for yourself? Are you doing it so you can tell the stories or have great pictures? Or do you actually have something you can teach people? Like, I remember I brought a dentist over to see Maria to, to just simply pull teeth. And of course, she's a dentist. She has that skill. And she'd worked on some other projects. And she said, you know, once she went on, at the end of the day, they had her doing, like, I think it was trying to build a building. And she's like, I don't have any expertise in building a building. Like, I'm the last person that should be trying to build a building. And you realize, yeah, that's 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 a great point. Like, they should have taken her money from going there and probably paid 10 locals to build a building who know how to build buildings. So, yeah, you, you should ask yourself, if whatever you're going over to do, are, are you indeed skilled and more skilled than the people there to be doing? And, of course, there's all other kinds of little issues to keep in mind. But, I mean, a lot of research, I, I think, is, is key, as, as Bodhi touched on, being really honest with yourself. And if it's truly making a difference, are there are you the best person to do it or there's your money better spent in other ways? And then just before I let you wrap it up, Trevor's, I, I thought it was really interesting. It seems the base of Bodhi's experience boiled down to the people. And that's what travel should be about more, right? He he said it was about hanging out with the people and seeing their way of life. And and often we don't want to slow down enough traveling, whether it's volunteering traveling or just traveling. But I think that's really neat is that's what travel should be about, is about the people and getting to know them. And uh, yeah, I just think that's a neat aspect of what he's doing. Oh my God, that's so much information. We, we really ought to do this as a follow-up episode again. Uh, when we were off the air, Bodhi gave us some recommendations for some really great people to talk to when we do do part two of Responsible Tourism. Um, for now, this is episode 26, and uh, this is Trevor signing off. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Gangport Tom and Amber?